Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? a podcast about national security and public safety. I'm recording this in January of, of, of 2021, and uh, this is marking the 20th year uh, in September, of course, of the attacks of 9-11, which means we have been for the past 20 years at war with terrorism. It's a terrible term. It's a term that I tried to dispel in my uh, fourth book, An End to the War on Terrorism. It's led to uh, a lot of successes, but an awful lot of things that have gone awry. Things like civilians who have been killed in airstrikes, the questionable nature of targeted killings, uh, Gitmo, uh, what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang province in the northwestern part of the country with the Uyghur Muslims, etc., etc. It almost seems that this so-called war on terrorism has enabled or, or encouraged many people to throw human rights out the window. And I think we all agree that's a bad thing. So I decided to, to look into this whole issue of uh, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, especially on the human rights front. And I've just, I brought into the conversation today uh, Tom Parker. And Tom is joining me from North Carolina. And I could talk about Tom's background for a very, very long time. Suffice to say, he's done an awful lot of work on counterterrorism with a variety of organizations around the world. He seems to have visited more countries than I have. And that's a very long list, I must, I must admit. And he's the author of the most recent book, Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. So, Tom... Thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, my pleasure. Let's start with the easy questions, Tom. Uh, the book that you've written, and here's a picture of it from my from my followers. Uh, it's, a, it's a brick of a book. Um, <laughs> why did you write it in the first place? Um, well, the genesis of it actually goes back to 2003 and um, uh, my own service in Iraq. Um, I was asked by the British government after the uh, occupation of Iraq by coalition forces to join the coalition provisional authority. Um, my background is not just in CT, but also in war crimes investigation. And so I was actually asked to work with the regime uh, crimes investigation office um, in CPA. And so I got to experience firsthand in 2003, the slide into chaos in Iraq. Um, and having been a counterterrorism official myself uh, in the 1990s and, and a relatively you know, traditional hard-charging um, investigator who wanted to put terrorists behind bars and, and um, you know, uh, it was full speed ahead and down the torpedoes. Um, I got to see firsthand a lot of the missteps we were making and the negative reactions we were getting from the Iraqi people by, by a lot of stuff that we were doing that we didn't even realize was alienating people who we were actually trying to win over. Um, and I had the opportunity um, when I finished in Baghdad to spend six months at Yale sort of reflecting on the experience um, as a fellow and doing some research on terrorism. And that led me to try and sort of contextualize some of the ideas that I'd sort of reached intuitively within the context of the history of terrorism more broadly. So I went back and did a lot of research on, on other conflicts, um, as well as sort of, sort of comparing my experience in Iraq to the experience that I'd had uh, in the 1990s, working primarily against uh, Middle Eastern terrorist groups, uh, state sponsors, and, and the provisional IRA, um, and see what lessons that I could sort of take from that. Um, one of the things that I say in the introduction to the book is it's not a book about human rights. Um, you know, I'm not a human rights lawyer. That's not my background. That's not how I come at this. Um, it's a book about defeating terrorism. It's a book about winning. Um, mm -hmm. And the more I researched, the more I experienced, the more I came to understand that human rights 
parameters actually stop you from making a lot of the mistakes that terrorists want you to make. And actually, if we work within those parameters, we can often work more effectively uh, and achieve more optimal results. So in other words, you sound like me, you really are a practitioner at heart that's looking at these issues, and you would acknowledge that in this uh, ill-phrased war on terror since 9-11, we've made a hell of a lot of errors, almost own goals, I guess I would call them, in our zeal to try to defeat terrorism. We've essentially forgotten what we stand for, and, and I've made mistakes that have been absolutely catastrophic in nature. No, absolutely. And, and you know, in the UK, particularly in the Northern Ireland conflict, we flirted with a sort of military approach in the early 1970s, and it did not work well. Um, and we settled into, from the mid-1970s onwards, a law enforcement approach, or at least a law enforcement-led approach to countering terrorism. Um, and it served us pretty well, both in terms of reducing the level of violence over time, and also in ultimately shepherding uh, the situation in, in Northern Ireland towards a peace process. So, you know, you know, we have a long experience of looking at this uh, problem in the United Kingdom, and we'd reached a very opposite conclusion to the one that the United States um, reached, you know, very quickly without a great deal of reflection in the aftermath uh, of 9-11. You know, and I understand that 9-11 was, by an order of magnitude, a far worse terrorist attack than anything the UK had suffered. Um, And, you know, I've also been uh, blown up myself twice, and I completely understand the anger and and, and strength of feeling that you you go through in the aftermath of, of that kind of experience. So I, I'm, I'm a little loath to uh, criticize the impulse. Um, but I mean, from a, you take a step back from the, um, the emotion of the moment and start thinking about strategy, which I don't think anybody really was in, in October and November 2001, then you realize you're going down a very, very difficult path that's likely to have very bad outcomes. You know, and a classic example of that would be the decision to, to open a detention facility in Guantanamo, which has resulted to, you know, almost, well, I think, five prosecutions in 20 years, an enormous yeah. expenditure of revenue, um, and very few satisfactory outcomes for anybody um, involved in the process, whether you're a family member from the, uh, the, the USS Cole, um, whether you're somebody who lost family on 9-11, um, or whether you're a human rights advocate, or whether you're one of the many innocent people that have been held there. You know, I mean, there just haven't been any good outcomes. And anyone who'd taken a few breaths to look at what was being proposed in Guant- uh, by the Bush administration in Guantanamo would have realized it was probably, one, unnecessary, um, and mm-hmm. two, likely to be very difficult to resolve and have bad outcomes. And, and it's that kind of knee-jerk response, that, that response to the, you know, the, the, the cries of something must be done, we have to show strength, you know, that, that's where the mistakes come from. Uh, you need cool heads in the aftermath of a terrorist incident. And they're, they're typically in pretty short supply, particularly if the people making the decisions haven't had much experience of being on the receiving end of that kind of event in the first place. So I think in the United States, in, in fairness to the Bush administration, you had a bit of a perfect storm of, of lack of experience and, and an, an overwhelming um, event. And, you know, they... they I actually do think the Bush administration tried to do what it thought was right. Um, and unfortunately, they, they uh, listened to the wrong advice and you know, acted with their hearts rather than their minds a lot of the time. I think you're absolutely right, Tom. In, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, emotions were raw. I mean, almost 3,000 people have been killed. It really, really was a strike at the heart 
of United States, the financial heart of New York, and of course, the political heart of Washington, I don't think any administration could have gotten away with doing nothing. And, and as you said, the reaction was what the reaction was, very much based on sort of an emotional response as to an intellectual one. And there certainly have been, you know, successes. There's no question about that. You know, there's a whole bunch, there's so much in your book we could talk about, but I, I want to kind of look at a, a few things that you, you've mentioned. One thing I found very interesting is you did a rather comprehensive historical look at how we define terrorism. Mm -hmm. now, now, you know as well as I do, Tom, mm -hmm. there's almost as many definitions of terrorism as there are people. Uh, mm -hmm. Alex Schmidt, whom I quote quite a bit, a fellow, a fellow, fellow if I can mm -hmm. use that term, at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague, you know, says there's over 200 definitions of terrorism. What is it? about this phenomenon, in your view, that has led to such a difficult time in, in, in developing a consensus on what terrorism is? What are the obstacles that have been in the play, in, put in the way so that we can't all agree on this is terrorism versus, versus this is not? I, so typically, and I, and I think it was um, Bruce Hoffman who, who actually identified these four obstacles uh, the first time, you have four different kind of concerns that governments have to navigate. The first is, you know, do, you, do I have sympathy for the group that this label is going to be applied to, right? And that, that could be particularly difficult, for example, if we're dealing with irredentist or nationalist terrorism. You know, if you're the Greek government and you're looking at um, IOKA campaigning for union with Greece on Cyprus, well, obviously, you're not going to be very comfortable about calling, you know, your, your fellow fellow Greeks, um, terrorists. So there's that sympathy for a cause. Uh, you know, a, another example of that would be perhaps um, the attitude of the Allies towards resistant movements during uh, the Second World War on, in, in occupied Europe. Um, the Nazis described groups like the French resistance as terrorist groups. Uh, and obviously that isn't a label that we uh, in the West would, would ever apply to the French resistance or the Dutch resistance, uh, the Poles, the Czechs. Uh, fighting against the Nazis, but it was a label, obviously, that the uh, uh, the Germans were very comfortable using. And if you actually analyze the tactics that were used by some of these groups, it's quite difficult to um, escape the fact that you know the Nazis have something of a point. Um, but it comes down to this, you know, the reasons why they were doing it, the cause they were fighting for. And there's a, a, a famous um, quote from Yasser Arafat: that the difference between a revolutionary and a terrorist is the cause they're fighting for. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's one issue. You know, do we do, do we have sympathy for the group or not? That's often an obstacle. Um, distinguishing terrorism from other types of violence. Yeah, we we have a fantastic example, right? This this past week in in Washington D.C. Um, mm -hmm. was the the assault on the Capitol building an act of terrorism. Um, to my mind, it probably wasn't. Um, which is not to say there might not be some elements within that crowd that had the intent to commit an act of terrorism if they'd had that opportunity. The person who left the pipe bombs, perhaps the guy with the zip ties, who knows? Um, but I wouldn't necessarily call a, um, you know, a public disturbance, even one that's directed at the seat of government, an act of terrorism. Um, but plenty of other terrorism experts out there are. Um, Absolutely. So that, you know, that, You'd be a very unpopular man in some circles like I've become, Tom, for, <laughs> for hesitating to call the whole thing an act of terrorism. No, you know, and, and, and that's fair enough, because guess what? Tempers are running high. But if you look at it, I can't see much that would distinguish what happened in D.C. from, say, for example, the, um, the protesters who attacked the federal courthouse in Portland. You know, you would have an attack on a, 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 an organ of government. 
or at least a branch of government. Um, there were attempts to, to severely damage the building um, to make the public's business impossible. So, you know, you, you can very quickly see how this label could be twisted, um, as indeed people on the right did try and twist it during the summer, to apply to groups like Black Lives Matter. And that, that should give all of us pause. I mean, terrorism is a really serious label, and labeling somebody a terrorist group comes with really serious consequences, right. particularly if you're talking about being in a war on terror. Those consequences can um, uh, or might include, you know, the use of lethal force. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm always a bit nervous about that. Another issue is distinguishing terrorism from what we used to call in uh, Northern Ireland ordinary decent crime, uh, ODC. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can think of a couple of out-and-out criminal groups that carried out acts that would pass the sniff test for terrorism. Um, I'm thinking of, oh, the, uh, the Corleone clan uh, in Sicily in 1993 carried out a series of bombings against uh, targets in Italy, including a bombing of the Uffizi Gallery, uh, which mm-hmm. killed six people. Um, and that was all about trying to get the Italian state to back off from the mafia, um, from organized crime right. activity. Um, uh, let me think of another one. Um, or the Mendain cartel um, carried out a bombing in 1989 of a Colombian airliner. Um, that was Pablo Escobar trying to kill a Colombian presidential candidate who was supposed right. to be flying on that aircraft. Um, again, killed everybody on board. Um, but would I call either of those acts terrorism? Probably not, because it wasn't really in pursuit of a political purpose, but rather a selfish purpose. So that's a challenge. Um, Then we have this issue of the political offense exemption, which is, you know, very close to the sympathy for a cause. But traditionally in international law, and particularly in, in extradition law, there has been a political offense exemption so that governments cannot extradite back to face justice their political opponents. Um, And so there is a concern a lot of times to protect dissidents, um, particularly in the liberal West. Uh, And that's another reason why we we have struggles sometimes with definition. When I was a security service officer in the early 1990s, uh, and Phil, you'll be familiar with this, you know, it was um, a standard joke on on the part of, you know, the French DST to describe London as Londinistan because we had so many North yeah. African, yeah. Um, you know, uh, we, could, we could call them political dissidents. I think we can call them terrorists. But a lot of the, uh, at least the political cover for a series of, of bombing attacks carried out in, in France, particularly in Paris, by the GIA was coming from, from refugees and people who've been given asylum in London. Um, exactly. So, you know, that, that becomes an issue. And then the, the final one would be concerns about having the label applied to your forces, right? So let's, let's pick an example, um, the Abbottabad raid, right? Um, if you're going to send a group of heavily armed individuals unlawfully into somebody else's country where they're going to kill people, um, you probably don't want the label terrorism applied to that. You want to call it a special mm-hmm. forces raid, a covert operations. And this is all about you know, the, the incredibly egregious um, weight that the label terrorism carries, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's a, a very serious, it's a very pejorative label. Um, there are very few terrorist groups that would accept the application of the label to their activities. Al-Qaeda, funnily enough, would be an exception. You know, Bin Laden used to say he practiced the good type of terrorism. Um, but for the most part, terrorist groups would reject the label. You know, the provisional IRA did not consider themselves a terrorist organization, they consider themselves an armed guerrilla movement uh, engaged in a political struggle or an armed struggle against a, um, an illegitimate state. 
So those are kind of the issues that we struggle with. And you're absolutely right. At the international level, um, you know, it has been incredibly difficult for states to coalesce around a single definition. Uh, and in fact, that's still the case today. I mean, we do not have an agreed, and I, I've heard you say this on your show before, there is no agreed international definition of terrorism. There is an agreed functional definition of terrorism at the international level, and that is built around the 19 protocols and instruments about counterterrorism. Uh, these are all basically treaties um, that have been signed by states and which were given um, lawful force particularly by two Security Council resolutions issued under Chapter 7, which makes them binding on all member states of the UN. And that is Security Council mm -hmm. Resolution 1373 and Security Council Resolution 1566. Uh, 1373 was after uh, one of the resolutions passed after 9-11, and 1566 was the resolution passed after the Beslan School Massacre. Um, and if you take mm -hmm. the text of those two resolutions together, what they basically amount to is a requirement for all states to sign the 19 protocols, um, conventions and instruments. And 1566 basically says terrorism is all the things covered by those 19 protocols, treaties and instruments. So we have a definition of terrorism agreed internationally by a series of activities lumped under that rubric of terrorism, rather than a definition that says terrorism is A, B and C. Um, but it right. does mean that states can agree and work together towards an agreed goal based on that functional definition. But, but uh, you know, that's a very comprehensive answer, uh, Tom, <laughs> and thank you. But you know, what, it, what it illustrates to me is that uh, we will have states and we will have actors that will use the term whenever it suits their purposes, and we will continue to agree to disagree uh, on any given actor. I mean, we, yeah, I think we all agree Al-Qaeda is a terrorist group, mm -hmm. and we all agree that ISIS is a terrorist group, but... Beyond that, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with your your uh, analysis of what happened in Washington on, on January the 6th. As I said, I've been crucified for not coming out definitively and saying it was an act of terrorism. I think it was a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I think it was a riot. Right. I think it was a partial insurrection. I think it was a, a shitty attempt at a coup by people who couldn't organize a, a piss up in a bar. Uh, and they're probably worthy of domestic terrorists. Um, so, so moving on, Tom, you know, you acknowledge you're not a human rights expert, and I appreciate that. I appreciate your your candor and your honesty in that regard. But it has seemed in the past 20 years that human rights has taken a, 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 a backseat, mm -hmm. almost to be ignored when it comes to counterterrorism. I think we all agree that's probably not a good development. We certainly want to see that human rights are, are honored and, and, and cherished and observed wherever mm -hmm. they can be. How could we do counterterrorism better by keeping the human rights sort of mantle uh, overall? In other words, according to human rights, the importance that it deserves. Um, well, I think the first point and the really important point that's nearly always missed in this discussion is international human rights law is actually pretty permissive in what it allows states to do in terms of countering terrorism. Right. I mean, you, the, this is a list of the things that you can do absolutely comfortably within uh, international human rights law, right? You can recruit sources, you can use electronic and physical surveillance, mobile surveillance, covert operations, false flags, disruptions. Um, you can interview people, you can detain people, you can administratively detain people, um, you can arrest people, you can use force to control public order uh, disruptions, and you can use force in self-defense. Um, so there's an and there's an and in defense of the public, there's an enormous range of activities that you can undertake lawfully that give an incredible range of powers to the state. 
And the only real restrictions on those powers are that they must be powers that are defined in law, that some form of due process is observed in their application, and that they are used in a manner that is reasonable, necessary, and proportionate to the threat faced. And there are very few people out there that would argue those are bad guidelines. And another thing you want to be thinking about is you want to observe human rights precisely because terrorist organizations don't want you to, right? They want to provoke an overreaction. And terrorist organizations have been explicit about that goal for 150 years. And it doesn't matter whether you read nationalist um, propaganda or manuals or, or whether you look at socialist or anarchist propaganda manuals, interviews. Um, communiques, whether you look at religious terrorist groups, whether you look at Al-Qaeda, whether you look at ISIS, you know, Dabit described uh, the elimination of the gray gray zone as one of the uh, objectives as ISIS. Um, You Mm -hmm. could go all the way back to a a, a Russian anarchist called Sergei Naichev, who wrote the Catechism of the Revolutionary. And one of his catechisms is you you let the most bestial state officials live because they will drive the people to inevitable revolt, right? This has been a consistent tenant of terrorist doctrine for 150 years. Um, And that's a pretty good reason why you might want to think twice before breaching those kind of guidelines that are set out by human rights uh, legislation and law, because that is exactly what terrorists want you to do. They want to provoke you to overreact. They want you to crack down. They want you to alienate their constituents. They want you to divide society, and they want you to tarnish your own sense of legitimacy, both with their community and with your own. Um, And if you look at counterterrorism campaigns through history, and whether you look at them in Western Europe, whether you look at them in Latin America, whether you look at them in an international context, that's pretty much what's happened every single time. Um, Louise Richardson, who's a fantastic terrorism researcher, wrote a very good book, uh, What Terrorists Want. Um, She had this throwaway line, and it was the inspiration for my book, which was that she thought that there was a state pathology of overreaction. Uh, and, and she wrote uh, that she hadn't seen a single example in her research, and she wrote this history of terrorism, where a state hadn't overreacted when facing terrorism. And that was kind of where I started writing my book, um, you know, seven mm-hmm. or eight years ago now. I took that, that, that thought and I thought, huh, I wonder if that's true. And I went away and I researched it and I dug and I dug and I dug. And I couldn't find an example. I really couldn't. I looked, I mean, wow. maybe Norway after Brevik, um, and again, that's uh, or New Zealand after um, the, the mosque shootings. But again, it's, it's very early days um, and they haven't suffered a repetition of that violence. So I, I don't know how good an analog they would be for the kind of stresses that most countries are placed under when facing a determined um, and sustained terrorist campaign. But if you look at the countries that did, nearly all of them overreact, particularly democracies, because politicians are under pressure to act. They need to show strength. Yeah. You know, security yeah. theater. They need to demonstrate. This is why you have people with M16s walking through Grand Central Station. You know, and if they right. fired those guns, they'd do more damage than the terrorists. Um, you know, when in, in, in the UK, we'll park a warrior armored personnel carrier outside Terminal 4. Um, it serves no functional post, uh, purpose right. whatsoever other than it looks tough. Yeah. I, I, I think, you, yeah, you raised some great points, Tom, about the need to show your publics that you're doing something because. The per, you know, if you don't do anything immediately, the perception is that you're you're weak or you're a coward. Yeah. When in actual fact, you're trying to gather more data before you do something. That's mm-hmm. just something that you know. Get, going back to the the attacks last Wednesday on on, on the Capitol, Washington, I, I said to my my followers, I look at I don't know exactly who was involved, and until I know mm-hmm. who's involved, 
I'm not going to say definitively it was terrorism or it was not. You also, I think, you know, you speak to the kind of past that you and I had in the security mm-hmm. service, and you demonstrate, I mean, quite categorically to, to my mind, that the types of things you and I used to, were involved in, you know, human source recruitment and mm-hmm. surveillance and intercepts, all that kind of stuff, are completely consistent with international human rights law. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we can do 99.9%, if not 100%, of counterterrorism completely consistent with human rights. But let me let me turn to one mm-hmm. particular practice, Tom, that's become very, very popular, mm-hmm. uh, especially under the Obama administration, under the Trump administration, mm-hmm. and other countries have carried out. This is this notion of a targeted killing. Mm-hmm. And we saw it, of course, with bin Laden. You referred to the Abbottabad attack in May 2011. Of course, we had the August, I believe it was, 2011 assassination of Amal Awlaki, who you and I both know from our days in the mm-hmm. security service was kind of the star radicalizer in the English-speaking world. This has become kind of like almost a go-to strategy in terms of counterterrorism uh, from a largely military perspective, although I'd argue also on the intelligence side. Should we be engaged in targeted killings as much as we are? Is it a good strategy? I think it's a terrible strategy, um, and I'll tell you why. There may be occasionally some tactical utility to doing so. There may occasionally be a self-defense imperative to doing so. So if we were to take the Awalaki um, drone strike, I have some sympathy with that decision. You know, if you have somebody who is operating out with law, you know, you cannot reach them. They are in Yemen. There is no police force, no friendly service that you can reach out to. Um, And you know that this person is actively engaged in encouraging terrorist attacks and helping people carry out terrorist attacks on your soil. And we know he was in in, in contact with the Fort Hood shooter. We know he was in contact with the Times Square bomber. Um, I don't know what else a state is supposed to do because it also has a human rights obligation, by the way, to protect the lives of its citizens and to protect the rights of its citizens. So I think you could probably make an argument that there was a right to preemptive self-defense in that operation. There are all sorts of tricky issues about the imminence, uh, in in law at least, um, but as a basic principle, you know, again, you know, betraying where I come from and what my background is, and I am, you know, by inclination, background, experience, and training an investigator. Um, and I like, you know, I want to see bad people put in jail. Um, I, I don't see what else you do if you're in that position in your estate. Um, but it has to be the very, very rare exception. Um, and the problem is it hasn't been used that way. And what you have is an example of a tactical tool that has been used in an unstrategic manner. Uh, and that's the problem. Um, and, you know, if you were to look at countries that have used this tool, um, I think they divide into to two types, right? There are the countries around the world that have authorized their intelligence communities or their military to use force externally against terrorist targets. And I'll put quotation marks around the word terrorist. Um, you know, an example would be Russia, um, which has carried out, um, you know, poisonings and, and, and other killings yeah. externally, lawfully. There's a, there's a, a Russian law authorizing it. Um, and maybe democracies, let's say Israel, um, that have carried out attacks um, uh, of targeted killings or, um, or lethal force operations, you know, consistently as an attempt. And, and typically the Israelis will say it's about keeping the other side off balance um, right. or, or removing, you know, key players, decapitation strikes. Um, well, lot, lots of research has been done on this now, um, particularly on decapitation strikes. And there are certain contexts in which they have worked. And I use decapitation here in the broadest possible sense, so that would include arrests. 
So something right. like, for example, Shining Path and, and the arrest of Admiral right. Goodsman. You know, sometimes in a very hierarchical organization that doesn't have deep roots in the soil, getting the guy at the top can have a catastrophic impact on, on a terrorist organization. But yeah, in absolutely. a more horizontal organization, which does have deep roots in the soil, it probably doesn't. And at the micro level, we also know that if you get rid of an established leader and replace them with a new, typically younger um, leader, you get someone who's more hot-headed, who has right. a political incentive to demonstrate their, um, that they're now in control, which means carrying out um, high-profile and, and more impactful attacks to demonstrate that. Um, so you can actually have a spike in violence afterwards. And there's, there's research on both sides of this particular question. Um, but I think the important takeaway is to, to understand that even if you're very good at it, you're going to kill a lot of innocent people. So civilians. You know, the, the Israelis during the Second Intifada reckoned they killed one civilian for every two militants they killed. Um, wow. If you look at, and that's in a context where they had, you know, special forces units that spoke Arabic and could blend into the local population. It's a tiny geographical area. They have immense SIGINT presence. They have cultural knowledge. They have historical knowledge. They have, you know, a network of informers. Um, you know, all of the, the, the uh, probably there is no more surveilled, more penetrated, you know, area of territory on the planet. And that was the best they could do. And by the way, wow. that also included dropping at one point a half ton bomb on a house that had, I think, 14 children in it when they were after one person. Uh, in particular. Um, so, you know, their, their, their record wasn't brilliant. Um, so then you can extrapolate from that that our record, and I use our in the sense, um, as you can tell from my accent, it's, it's a little fluid, but I, I am from the UK, but I am an American citizen. I've lived in America for 20 years. Um, so in this instance, I'm talking about our in the sense of the United States. Um, you know, we don't know uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan anywhere near as well as the Israelis know the occupied territories. Um, right. And, you know, we know that an awful lot of the drone strikes that we've carried out um, in Afghanistan and in Pakistan did not hit the right targets. I mean, dear God, a, a Canadian unit was hit in one of the strikes, for goodness sakes. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what, 10, 15 years ago. But there yeah. was a Canadian unit in Afghanistan that was actually hit in a U.S. strike. Yes. I think it, was a, yes. it wasn't a drone strike. It was a, um, you know, a fixed wing aircraft strike. But, uh, you know, th these things are not easy. Yeah. Um, by Tula Masood, who used to be. Um, the the head of the Pakistani Taliban used to say every drone strike brings me three new suicide bombers, um, yeah. and then think about uh, another um, uh, case study, Hassan al Balawi. Um, that's the cost suicide bomber that that, that was able to yeah. kill uh, members of the CIA uh, station in in, in Afghanistan. Yes. Right up until that point, the CIA were carrying out drone strikes based on the intelligence he was providing, which he was mm -hmm. providing under control from the uh, the Pakistani Taliban. Who do you think they were hitting? Right? You know, and, and yeah. just two examples. So, I mean, long story short, you know, we haven't used drones anywhere near as surgically or precisely as the, the U.S. administration, particularly, frankly, the Obama administration, would have you believe. Now, in my really weird and varied career, not only have I been a security service officer, I actually spent uh, three and a half years during the Obama administration working for Amnesty International, as their U.S. spokesman on terrorism, counterterrorism, and human rights. Um, and so it was the height of the drone campaign. And I remember hearing um, uh, Brennan, uh, who was the counterterrorism advisor to Obama at the time. He went on to be the director of the CIA, uh, John Brennan. I remember him saying that what they reckoned that they were killing 40 milita militants for every innocent civilian. Um, and that just wasn't believable on any level.
And it ultimately turned out that the reason they had reached that figure is they were considering every male of military age killed in a drone site to be a member of a terrorist organization. And that's how they they reached that figure. Well, as you and I know, in military combat, and if you're going to call it a war on terror, you know, right, you're going to fight it within military rules. Um, There is something in the Geneva Conventions called the Doctrine of Distinction. You actually have an obligation as a soldier on a battlefield to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. You just can't call everybody a suspected combatant. Um, So that, that, that in and of itself, arguably, could be a war crime. Um, so this is this is not a world you want to be in as a counter-terrorist, right? And as a counter-terrorist, you want to make sure that you are on the side of law and order, that you're on the side of right, um, and that when you are acting decisively, you do so in a way that the damage done is confined to the people you actually want to hurt, um, you know, and to stop from carrying out further attacks. And bear in mind, right, everybody you kill has a brother, a sister, yeah. a parent, children, um, friends, extended relations, right? And they will want revenge. Um, you will yeah. have, you know, uh, th- there's a concept we look at a lot in, in radicalization called feuding. Um, right? We yeah. know that one of the most highly correlated reasons why people join terrorist organizations is because they themselves have either witnessed or personally experienced a human rights abuse of some sort. And that probably correlates in a lot of recent research, and there's a lot of research out of Africa in particular, uh, around about the 50% mark with people interviewed as to the reasons why they joined a terrorist organization. Wow. Boy, that's high. Right? Yeah, wow. really high. Now, there's there's some arguments about the quality of that data. Um, but if you look at individual qualitative accounts, which I have, and I've read a lot, a lot of memoirs, a lot of, of interviews with, with terrorists, and you look at why they joined again and again and again and again and again, you will find a personal experience of having their house searched, uh, being beaten up at a checkpoint, um, losing a family member, something along those lines as the reason, as the trigger, if you like, as the precipitating incident that means that they cross from being, you know, uh, someone who's not active in a terrorist organization or not active in a conflict to someone who becomes an actor. So, you know, you need to think really, and this is not an argument for never using force, you know, it's going to be needed on occasion, but it is an argument for making damn sure when you use force, you use it in as restrained and as lawful manner as you possibly can. Right. I, you know, I, I think you've, un, you've unpacked that really, really well, Tom. And, and you're right. This, I remember looking back, and I think Brennan even boasted at one point that not one single civilian had been killed in a drone strike over us. And it, you, those of us who worked in counterterrorism, we just rolled our eyes because we knew that was categorically false. Uh, you know, there's, there's no way that the odd person hadn't been killed. And as you said, it's probably a lot higher. And there has been some good data that's come out on that. Um, Tom, Tom, last question for you. You know, you've entitled your book, uh, Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. So unfair question to, for you mm-hmm. to, for you to end this podcast. Do you think we can get there? Do you think want, that we'll get to a point where when we do our counterterrorism, that the respect for human rights will be first and front, sort of up front, you know, first and foremost, and that we can use that to actually, I'm not sure we can defeat terrorism. It's been around for a very long time, but we can certainly whittle away at its impact. So is this even a possible goal from your perspective? I think it is. I think you said something very, very important there, which is it is incredibly difficult to defeat terrorism, but it is possible to contain it. Um, And it's certainly uh, possible to reduce the level of violence and the efficacy of terrorist organizations. And I think that is a more realistic goal um, for most counter-terrorists to pursue than defeating terrorism per se. 
Um, if you look at the history of terrorist organizations, about half, there was a RAND study uh, a few years ago, about half uh, terrorist organizations, you know, enter some sort of peace process eventually um, and are to a degree incorporated into some form of political polity going forward, right? Um, so that's one outcome. Um, and so part of the counter-terrorist job is to give the diplomats, the politicians, space to negotiate um, and, and come to an agreement. And by the way, it's going to be a lot easier to do that if you haven't killed everybody's children in, in the process of your counter-terrorism, right? You know, I mean, you want people to be able to walk away from violence. You want them to be able to have an exit strategy that they can sell to their people um, and that they're personally willing to contemplate. Um, so I think that's a really important point. In terms of persuading counter-terrorist officials to think in terms of operating within human rights, the reason I wrote this book, or one of the most important reasons why I wrote this book, is essentially at the moment we have a dialogue between two groups that aren't listening to each other and are talking two completely different languages. Um, human rights organizations are talking about morality, they're talking about law, they're talking about um, operating within uh, from the moral high ground. You know, all very persuasive things, but things that most counter-terrorist officials don't think about very much, right? Um, when I was in the security service, and, and you're a much more recent veteran of, of that world than I am, but in the 1990s, I can tell you, I never once heard the words human rights mentioned in any conversation um, in Thames House or, or Curzon Street, because, you know, it wasn't part of our everyday language. We worried a lot about British law. Um, that was what we'd been trained on. Those were the parameters we operated within. And, and Britain didn't even actually pass the Human Rights Act until 1998, um, which incorporated the European Convention on Human Rights into British law. So it wasn't just wasn't part of the national conversation. And that's mm-hmm. not that long ago, right? That's 20 years ago. Um, so you, what you need to do when you're trying to persuade practitioners is you've got to talk to them in a language they understand. They understand the, the language of their law, their domestic legislation, but they also understand the language of efficacy. Um, and what right. I found over time is that if you can persuade people with real world examples that operating within a human rights con- framework is a more effective response, and that's whether or not we're talking about interviewing people, whether or not we're talking about using force, um, whether we're talking about in community engagement, right? I mean, there are so many examples out there that you can look at where people have broken human rights standards. Um, you know, torture is a classic example. Uh, if we look at the way that the French mm-hmm. used torture in Algeria, um, you can make an argument at the tactical level that the French actually enjoyed some success using torture, right? They were able to get names sometimes and locations out of some people. But that tactic, t- tactical utility was greatly overshadowed by a strategic disaster, a disaster that alienated the French military from the French population. Um, alienated mm-hmm. the French military from the Algerian population, um, ultimately forced the military into a series of criminal activities that led it to actually overthrow the French government at the time, um, you know, because you had created a culture of lawlessness within the armed forces, and that's very dangerous too. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, when you start to unpack individual cases, you give them examples of people who have been tortured and lied. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed waterboarded you know, almost 200 times, still was able to lie about the identity of bin Laden's courier, um, told the International Committee of the Red Cross that he had made things up under torture. Um, you know, these are real-world examples where you know, torturers have tried to get information and it has blown back on them really seriously. You know, the most right. famous example would be some of the uh, so-called intelligence that was used to justify the invasion of Iraq, which came mm-hmm. from yeah. 
um, intelligence interviews conducted with torture uh, in the context of, um, uh, of Egypt. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you look at some of these real world case studies and it will give even the most hard charging, even the most aggressive counter-terrorist official an element of pause. Um, if you just tell people, oh, it doesn't work, that's not enough. You have to, you have to provide the evidence. You have to break it down for them. And then you, you know, I, I, this is what I do for a living. I, I travel around the world. I train law enforcement, intelligence and military officials all over the world. Um, and I reckon that in most classes I give, maybe I reach a third of the people in the classes and get them to think twice. Um, and so it's a long, slow conversation. But if you can get them to start seeing success from these methods in the field, then it becomes much easier to persuade other people to follow. Right. Tom, I think we could talk for days uh, about your, your work. I, I just want to say I, I've been absolutely fascinated by what you've walked us through here today. And not surprisingly, I'm in complete agreement with your views on uh, how we're doing things poorly in many ways, how we can do things much better and how actually having human rights at the fore is, is actually one of the only things that's going to get us any kind of success in this whole kind of thing. Listen, Tom, thank you for your service with 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 MI5. I still have many good friends who still who work there, as well as the work you've done since then. And I just want to say thank you so, so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was completely my pleasure. So that was my conversation with Tom Parker. I, I, I'll put a link to his book as well. I, I really think you should pick this book up. It's It's quite fascinating. It's quite comprehensive. What do you think about what we talked about, about this nexus between counterterrorism and human rights? Let me know. You can reach me on email, borealisfrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you want to get more of the material, you can subscribe. Go to my website, borealisfrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. Provide your email address. You'll get a free daily digest of all the material as well as unique material that only subscribers get. I'd love to hear feedback on this conversation and others. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>